The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of chapters 35 and 36. Martin begins his experiment at St. Swithin's and immediately sees results. The disease attacks the unfaged half of the population much more heavily than those who had been treated. Twyford risks his life nursing those he had treated as slaves, and Joyce Lanyon borrows a maid's gown and sets to work as a cook. Sometimes, at night, Martin and Joyce flee their fevered patients for the healing tide of a rocky lagoon, and once he kisses her. When she insists he doesn't care a hang about her, he tries to reassure her, and himself, that he does, but he is haunted by images of hospital cots and of the face of Leora. Later that night, he considers knocking at Joyce's door, but then he calls himself a fool and tramps back to his room. Meanwhile, Leora spends unending hours at Penrith Lodge, feeling his absence and longing to hear his approaching step. She spends sleepless nights in a bed with ominously torn mosquito netting. And, still more ominously, one night she recalls that she was to have given herself another dose of phage, and she puts it off till morning. The next evening at dusk, she goes into Martin's lab to feel his presence, and puts one of his half-smoked cigarettes to her cracked lips, not knowing that a maid had knocked over a test tube, trickling onto the cigarette enough plague germs to kill a regiment. Two nights after, she awakes feverish. She drags herself to the kitchen to relieve her painful thirst. Her brain becomes cloudy, and she staggers out into the darkness to find help. Then she crawls back to the lodge, where she slips into a coma, thinking all the while, I know you'll come and help me. I know. You'll come. Martin. Back in St. Swithin's, Martin is jovially defending himself against Joyce's efforts to convince him to give phage to everyone, and expressing his hopes that Joyce and Leora will get each other. He drives to Penrith Lodge to retrieve her. He arrives to discover a desperate silence, and Leora's frail, lifeless body. Martin goes to pieces. He rages, damn experimentation, and gives phage to anyone who asks, even delighting in the effort to wreck all his scientific purposes. He spends sleepless nights alone, drinking heavily, not caring if he lives or dies. He scorns Joyce, that glib society climber, blaming her that he didn't return to Leora sooner. But it is her cautious offer of friendship that gives him a shiver of new courage. He stops drinking and returns to St. Swithin's and his experiment. Six months later, whether from phage or rat-killing or providence, the plague has almost vanished and the quarantine is lifted. As Joyce departs on the steamer, she says to Martin, "'Mayn't I come and see you in New York?' and all he can think is that Leora would never have asked. As the giver of phage, Martin is regarded as a hero, the Blackwater paper calling him the savior of all our lives. 
Holabird writes a letter of gratitude for the glory he has added to the name of McGurk, and to offer him a position as head of a department, as soon as he publishes his report. Martin's response is a confusion of thoughts, of his betrayal of Gottlieb, of his disgust with giving orders, of his desire to get back to the lab, of how much Leora would have enjoyed the increase in his salary. The evening before his departure from St. Hubert, he is honored at a dinner where he receives the praise of Fairlam and Kellett, while he fears the scorn of Gottlieb and Wicket. Quote, the more they called him a giver of life, the more he felt himself disgraced and a traitor. Unquote. On his voyage back to New York, he meets again the irksome Miss William, who asks after the roughneck Sandalius and observes that Martin's wife isn't with him. And then, when Martin excuses himself, complains that some people have no manners. At night, Martin stands on the deck, thinking about his experiment, fearing the criticisms that will be made against him, defensively preparing his answers, and ultimately welcoming the attacks as vital to the process. And for the first time in weeks, he sleeps without the terror of self-doubt. At the pier in Brooklyn, Martin is greeted first by a perfunctory holobird who welcomes him, showers him with promises, and then says he can't stay. Then he is met by Terry Wicket, who teases him for kissing the director, says one day he is going to run away and start a lab in his shack in the Vermont woods, and then asks Martin, Are you going with me? or are you going to be one of Holy Wren's pets, hero-scientist? Martin vows that with Gottlieb gone, he and Terry have to stick together. Back at McGurk, Martin is bathed in glory. Reporters come for interviews, colleges offer him honorary doctorates, medical schools beg him to address their students, and even old Pickerbaugh honors him in verse. Holabird uses Martin as the prize exhibit of the Institute, making him head of a department with twice his salary. Martin refuses invitations, but fails to resist the glorification. He goes to see Gottlieb, anticipating his disappointment and scorn. But Gottlieb is suffering a senile dementia so severe that he can only mutter, I don't understand, in German. Martin is disappointed that he can never be punished now, and cleansed. Martin sets to work checking the statistics of his St. Swithin's experiment, while Holabird prematurely reports wonders to the board and to the public. When Martin says he does not yet have real proof, Holabird euphemistically suggests that he suppress the statistical results. With the surly encouragement of Wicket, he goes back to his studies of mathematics and physical chemistry. Quote, the sureness to which Max Gottlieb seems to have been born came to Martin slowly, unquote. and Martin publishes his first, real, rigorous scientific paper. Holabird is thrilled by the reception of Martin's work, and he skims it, saying he shall certainly read it thoroughly the first free moment he has. The next of my posts was called Lewis's Vision of the Ideal. Though prior to Aerosmith, 
Sinclair Lewis was admired as a novelist for such acclaimed works as Babbitt and Main Street. According to an article I read by James M. Hutchison, he was also criticized as being without spiritual gifts, unsympathetic to his characters, and unable to convey his notions of the ideal in modern man. After Babbitt, Lewis set his sights on creating a novel characterized by idealism. One he said would be, quote, not satiric at all, rebellious as ever, perhaps, but the central character heroic, unquote. He originally conceived of modeling this character around Eugene Debs, labor leader and socialist candidate for president. However, after doing research, Lewis says that he found himself unable to work up a complete conformist sympathy with the Union men. He needed a new hero. After he spent a fateful night shouting philosophy with scientists Morris Fishbein and Paul de Cruyff, he was then inspired with a vision of Martin Arrowsmith. He says that he thought to himself that night, quote, What protagonist of fiction could be more interesting, more dramatic, and less hackneyed than a doctor who, starting out as a competent general practitioner, emerges as a real scientist, despising ordinary success? Unquote. Lewis's vision of the ideal and the theme of this novel is that of a pure, cold-hearted, non-commercial, self-abnegating, results-scorning, spiritual sort of devotion to science and truth. The plot of the novel, if you can call it that, consists of a seemingly unending sequence of tests of that devotion. I myself wouldn't exactly call it a plot, because it is not a series of progressive, interconnected tests, each following from and building upon the last, and leading up to a climactic moment of truth. Instead, to me it plays out like a sort of running of the gauntlet, a horizontal, ground-level series of trials that Martin has to overcome if he's going to commit himself to his ideals. The question that must be answered with finality in these last chapters is, what exactly is the ideal of pure science? And can it be achieved? The next of my posts was called Some Favorites. As much as I hated part of these chapters, something I will discuss shortly, I found tucked within them some really valuable insights. The first was something among Martin's musings on board the ship. Quote, Constant criticism was good, if only it was not spiteful, jealous, petty. No, even then it might be good. Some men had to be what easygoing workers called spiteful. To them, the joyous spite of crushing the almost good was more natural than creation. Why should a great house wrecker, who could clear the cumbered ground, be set at trying to lay brick? Unquote. I found this fascinating. Since I myself bristle at sarcasm and negativity and embrace the philosophy criticized by creating, I have to be careful not to judge all men by the standards of my own soul. There is room for all types. Not just room, but vital necessity. I remember once asking one of my personal heroes, Alan Charles Coors, how he would identify himself politically. 
he defined himself in terms of a negative, saying he's an anti-communist. In the realm of politics, at least, he himself is a house wrecker, a crusher of communism. He is, of course, so much more. But I find it interesting to consider the necessity of those whose basic purpose is to clear the cumbered ground rather than to build upon it. Let me know if you have any favorite house wreckers. Another was Lewis's expression of Martin's guilt when, in a haze of rage and grief, he sabotaged his own experiment. As Fairlamb and Kellett praised him as a savior, quote, the more they shouted his glory, the more he thought about what unknown, tight-minded scientists in distant laboratories would say of a man who had his chance and cast it away. The more they called him the giver of life, the more he felt himself disgraced and a traitor. And as he looked at Stokes, he saw in his regard a pity worse than condemnation." Unquote. A pity worse than condemnation. Ayn Rand explained why she thinks it is worse in The Fountainhead. Quote, but this was pity, the complete awareness of a man without worth or hope, this sense of finality, of the not to be redeemed, an emotion that contained no shred of respect. Unquote. Rourke's pity for Keating is certainly more final and not to be redeemed than Stokes's for Martin but I think the element that makes it worse is the same, the condescension in the feeling, and the compounding of guilt. Part of the reason guilt is compounded with pity is that the guilty isn't given the opportunity of redemption through punishment. This was another point that intrigued me in this chapter, when Martin finally faced Gottlieb, only to find his mind unreachably clouded by dementia. Quote, Martin understood that he could never be punished now and cleansed, unquote. He simultaneously feared and longed for Gottlieb's condemnation. He wanted to suffer it, to be purified by it, to be inspired by it, and to move forward. I'm glad the chapters contain these moments, because there were others that I can't forgive. And that brings me to the last of my posts, which I called The Gratuitous Horror of Leora's Death. I personally thought that the death of Leora was not just horrific, but needlessly, pointlessly, gratuitously horrific. Let me explain why. First, I have to say again that I, and I know many of you, and I know many readers across the ages, have regarded Leora as the most consistently sympathetic character in the novel. She's charming, unpretentious, loyal, affectionate, and just plain adorable. According to the article by Hutchison, publisher Alfred Harcourt said that Leora was, quote, just about the best woman character in American fiction, unquote, and suggested that Lewis end the novel with her death and call it Leora. Hutchison says Lewis himself admitted that Leora contained most of his, quote, capacity for loyalty and love and friendship, unquote. To his credit, Lewis succeeds in making us all fall in love with her. But that, in my mind, makes the details of her death all the more insupportable. Leora does not just die. 
She dies because she capriciously, and I think implausibly, decides to put off taking her next dose of phage, and then forgets. She dies because she misses Martin so desperately that just to feel his presence, she enters his lab and puts his old, half-smoked cigarette to her lips. She dies utterly alone, because when the maids discover her ill, they abandon her, leaving her to crawl her way to the kitchen to relieve her agonizing thirst, to lie on the ground whimpering and delusional, to stumble out into the road to find help. She dies while Martin is with Joyce Lanyon. He, blithely struggling over whether to go to Joyce's room, while Leora struggles for the dying breaths with which she utters her certainty that he will come to hers. She dies and is buried in a pit in a yard in a foreign land. I can identify reasons why, for Lewis, she had to die. Her death is an extreme sort of trial of Martin's ideals. Martin finds himself unable to maintain a cold-hearted commitment to controls and experiment in the wake of her death. And if he ever is to devote himself to those ideals, I think he has to be something of a clerical celibate in the Church of Science, with absolutely nothing, not even a wife, to distract him from his goals. But I can see no reason why she had to die capriciously, painfully, miserably, and alone. For drama, you might answer. It pulls at the heartstrings. It makes you feel. But I think that pulling at the heartstrings as an end in itself, with no necessity to the novel's theme, is never justified. And I can think of no necessity. At the risk of alienating those of you who might be fans, this is why I have always personally hated the movie Slumdog Millionaire. I think it is egregiously guilty of this principle. It made me weep, and it made me feel played. The suffering I had to endure did not, as I think it does in something like Les Miserables, add up to a high moral purpose. It felt, to me, gratuitous and cheap. And so did Leora's death. <laughs>